Nice to see everybody back. I'm assuming that everybody got the message about um, we've, in the last couple of weeks we've had two break-ins to the cars on 26th Street right next to the building. So just reminding people, most of you know this already, but we should never leave um, anything visible in the car that looks valuable so that we're not encouraging these thefts and also protecting our valuables. So just to remember that uh, this uh, even day, so the second week and the fourth week and the sixth week will break, at the very end we'll break into small groups. So with about 25 minutes left, we'll break into groups of three and have a chance to share how the practice is going, in particular around effort. And so I'll share for the next half an hour some thoughts that I have. Feel free to ask questions if you have them as I'm speaking. And remember, we're interested in this dynamic we're calling samadhi. And this is a part of the practice where we're using the mind to look at the mind in a very specific way to help set in motion a really beautiful mind. And we all know, I don't need to tell you, we all know directly from our experience, that sometimes our mind is a real mess and not really good for much and a really difficult place to be. It's tight, it's angry, it's heavy. All kinds of different ways that the miserable states of mind can manifest. And other times our mind is quite beautiful. It's radiant, it's clear, it's fearless feels really grounded or steady. It's nimble or wieldy, like it does what it's asked to do, doesn't have a problem, sort of uh, meeting the moment in an appropriate way. That's that nimbleness of the mind, you know, when it's in balance. So given that we've experienced the mind across this range, really beautiful, functional, skillful mind, really unbeautiful, dysfunctional, unskillful mind. So we've seen it along the spectrum. And the question is, well, how do we, how can the mind itself participate, of course, (laughs) going in this direction, in the direction of what we call samadhi. And so the components of samadhi that we'll be looking at these six weeks Energy, mindfulness, and concentration. But they're very much overlapping. I put up an article on our webpage, the Buddhist Studies webpage, from Ajahn Tanisaro on um, joy and effort, it's called. I'll read a little bit of that. I, I just found it really valuable because... Well, we have misunderstandings around effort. That's why we haven't mastered the art of effort. It's because we get confused about it. And one of the reasons we get confused is it feels like we're making effort and then nothing good happens. And then we want to give up. And he gives the example, and and maybe it even comes from the tradition, you know, from the time time of the Buddha. 
but he says it's like uh, somebody trying to get milk from a cow and they're turning the horn of the cow and it doesn't work and they get angry, you know, or they try harder. You know, and you're going to feel betrayed. But it's not that effort is wrong. It's just the wrong effort. And sometimes we think, well, we just need to relax. Well, we need to relax when the kind of effort we're making is wrong. But when the kind of effort we're making is good, it's not that we want to be tight, but we don't need to stop making that effort. If we're getting the right results, then what should arise, like it does naturally for us, we get enthusiastic, we become happy. There's nothing that makes a human being happy more than applying one's effort and actually getting the results you want, right? We feel good. If you ever watch children, like especially young children, two, three-year-olds, when they do something and they get the result they want, they're so happy and they want to do it again. They Just that feeling like they can participate in the world, they understand how it works. I do this, this happens. How amazing. And you see this at time with people who uh, have some success in their meditation practice. It's like they want to go sit. I do this with my mind and I get this really nice feeling. It's so amazing. <laughs> no drugs, you know, no special equipment. And and then the rest of us, it's like, oh, I know I have to meditate or I should meditate, but we don't really want to do it. And so when we do do it, we tend to just keep doing the same thing on autopilot that didn't deliver before, hoping that maybe this time it will deliver. It's hard to approach our life and our meditation with a lot of honesty and creativity, like, okay, so if that's not working... Maybe I should tweak it or try. I was talking to one of our longtime community members this morning, and she was saying, you know, when she bumps up against that place, that she she realized, well, I can always go study. Whether that study is just asking us, okay, now what do I know? What have I learned? And regurgitating, okay, this is what my teachers have told me. So let me apply that. Or actually going back to a book. Okay, and then applying it. Hearing some new instruction and then applying it or having a different perspective. So we want this active part of effort instead of just droning on in a way that's not leading to results. Let me read a little from this article. So again, this is on the web, on our webpage. Often you hear that there are two ways of approaching meditation. One is to put in lots of neurotic, miserable effort. You stress and strain with your heart firmly set on the time someday in the far distant future when you'll finally become awakened. The other approach is just to realize that the Dharma is all around you in the present moment. You just relax into the present moment and there you are. Now if those were the two only alternatives, the second would obviously be the, more, the only reasonable approach. But there are other alternatives as well. It's possible to relax into the present moment and still be filled with delusion. It is possible to enjoy putting effort into the practice, to thrive on challenges, to realize that there is a mature way to relate to the goal of awakening and actually get there. 
you realize that, yes, the experience of awakening is not here yet. It's someplace in the future. But to get there, you have to focus on here. And focusing on here is not just a matter of relaxing. There's work to be done. Ajahn Lee, and this is one of Ajahn Tanisaro's teachers, has a good strategy. He says, the practice is like trying to get fresh water out of salt water. The fresh water is already there in the salt water, but just allowing the salt water to sit and relax for a long while is not going to get the salt to separate out. You have to distill it. The fire of your distillery is analogous to the effort that goes into the practice. If you don't put in the effort, you're never going to get fresh water out of the salt water. But the trick is learning how to sustain effort so that you don't give up when the going gets tough. The best way, uh, the best way to make it all the way, uh, the best way to make it all the way there is to figure out how to enjoy. Well, I'll translate. (laughs) He's saying the best way to do this is to find a way to enjoy the work. Not to avoid the work of practice, but to find a way to enjoy it. And he goes on, he talks about um, the forest ajans that he got to study with when, as a young man, he was in Thailand. And that they all, even though that their personalities were quite different, he said there was a commonality among these teachers that he came across in Thailand, the ones who really felt had developed their practice, had a lot of freedom, and that they were all energized by problem solving, like the problems of their own mind solving. And really, and you know, we all have this to some degree, and now it's just a question of strengthening it, where we feel um, enlivened by challenges and have enough trust in our mind, our heart, in our, you know, the basic intelligence of the mind and heart that it can be figured out. We can apply ourselves to this. Now the great tragedy is when a human being bumps up against one difficulty after another and all this natural enthusiasm around learning, the natural energy that arises around problem solving, this is just built into human beings, but it can get burnt out when a human being, because they're being oppressed or they're in poverty or they've had one terrible illness after another or tragedy after another and they they lose that confidence that they can take their mind and apply it to the problems at hand and as they bring their intelligence and their persistence they'll figure out how to how it all how they can participate not how to be masters of the universe and in control of everything, but how they can participate skillfully in how things are unfolding. So although we're not in control of much, we're definitely, it's definitely possible to, I don't know if control is the right word, but participate in how we're relating to how it's all unfolding. That's very much at play. I can relate this way or I can relate that way. I can show up or I can disconnect. And these are powerful interventions in, in the sense of how it is for me. It makes a big difference whether I'm 
undertaking strategies of not really wanting to be there in my life. You know, and, you know, each of us, I mean, I bet in this room of 80-some people, I bet if we created a mural of all the ways we disconnect, dull out, uh, practice not really being there in our different experiences, we'd have quite a collection. All the little and big ways. The kind of things that we use are so important, but we're really engaging this in order not to feel that over here. So it looks like, no, 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 I'm engaged, but we're not, because the motivation is to be disconnected, to be away from our feeling. I don't want to feel what I'm feeling. I don't really want to see this. I don't really want to know the world I'm living in. There's a little bit more here I want to read. It's a short article. I recommend you take a look at it. He says, so to do it well at the meditation, it's a matter, it's a matter one, of being willing to put in the effort and two, of learning how to enjoy the effort, learning how to enjoy puzzling things out. The Buddhist path is not the sort where you simply do as you're told, noting, 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 or scanning, scanning, scanning. This is very common in the Buddhist world and probably all worlds of criticizing other techniques. <laughs> so he's making fun, for those who haven't picked up, of the Mahasi side, a noting technique. And then he's making fun of the Goenka practice, style of practice of doing body scan meditation, which are both great techniques, by the way. His point is still good. He just doesn't need to be criticizing other people. The Buddhist path is not the sort where you can simply do as you're told noting, 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 or scanning, 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 without thinking, that's the important thing, to do it as a just sort of a habit. Those approaches are simply mindfulness exercises, but people tend to do them mindlessly, right? That's the problem, without asking any questions. Actual insight comes not by pummeling the mind with a technique, but from posing the right question in the mind. What are these assumptions I'm carrying around here? How could I do this more efficiently? What am I doing that I'm not noticing? How can I learn how to notice it? How can I catch the mind as it's it's about to let go of its mindfulness? This last point may sound impossible, but it is not. When you learn how to pose questions in the mind like this, and you enjoy trying to find the answers, it's going to bring progress along the path. And this is something we really um, have to gain skill at. Saida Utejaniya, this Burmese teacher that I've been able to study with a few times, he's really into the practitioners asking questions, learning how to ask questions and how to use the arising of a question in the mind to keep the mind really bright and engaged. How to use thinking, because this is right thinking, in a way that supports the practice instead of distracts from the practice. Because otherwise what happens is we, the only thing we're doing is 
cultivating tranquility, but in a way that often is like beating down. Beating down the part of the mind that actually wants to understand, wants to learn. Instead of learning how to tame this wild beast, right? It is a little wild. It doesn't really know what it's doing, so it has to learn. Like we have to teach this part of the mind that is inquisitive. What's that old uh, saying about curiosity killed the cat? Is that how it goes? Yeah. Yeah. Satisfaction brought it back? Brought it back to curiosity? Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> okay. But this idea that, you know, this curiosity, we really need it. We have to want to solve this problem of suffering and the end of suffering. We want to, this is a goal. And it's okay, you know, on this relative ego-based level, I want to be happy. I really want to be free. And I want to be free no matter the conditions that show up in my life. And this is sort of the ultimate puzzle to figure out, well, how to do that. It just seems so messy. And it seems like so many of my attempts don't work. But, you know, that's what makes it challenging. And to understand, like, uh, you know, when we're really on the hunt for something, we have to know, like, when it's time to put it down for a while and go to sleep or go do something else. And it's the same in meditation practice that we might really be looking at something like maybe some deep pain and the mind is really there with it. We're really practicing letting it just be what it is, not judging it, not being in a hurry. And that's just great practice for a while until it's not great practice anymore. And then great practice is being okay with putting it down and directing the mind somewhere else. And to understand, like, what, uh, what is the edge of my learning right now? I mean, this is what makes a great teacher, you know, I'm thinking more like elementary age kids, but I think at all levels, really, and I see this more and more just in terms of supporting other people's practice, you know, my role here, is somehow in conversation with them about spiritual life to listen and then reflect back like the edge of where they're about to learn something or might be able to learn something and to help them see that natural enthusiasm like that where they, we feel alive at the edges you know, the edge of the known and the unknown. And it's often scary, and we it's often a place where we've had a lot of missteps, like wanting to get it, but haven't gotten it, wanting to claim it as mine, but haven't been able to. So we're inclined maybe to give up, or we're inclined to force it. And so how to be persistent and creative and to ask questions. Okay, What's the problem here? Like, I have the sense that it's not working. Well, what is it about this moment that's telling me it's not working, that it's not okay? 
or what's asking for acceptance? Or like uh, Ajahn Tanisaro has, the, he, his comment was something like, um, what's not being seen here? What's here but not clearly seen? What's present in the body and mind but not clearly recognized? And you see how it, any of these questions, they're, they're good to the degree that it brings the mind into this place of learning, into a receptive place of learning, where it's really less arrogant, less sure it knows what it's doing, and more willing to listen and to understand, like to really connect the dots. Oh, this is what's going on. This is how it is. This is from the Buddha. From time to time, someone devoted to the higher training should give attention to three things. Concentration, energetic effort, and equanimity. And the interesting thing is like how they don't contradict each other. How we can have a sense of stability, concentration. It's really a steadiness. And you see, it makes so much sense that the energetic effort should be in the context of being steady. Otherwise, it gets wild. And equanimity. It's like the energetic effort to understand or to be free. If, it's, if there's not equanimity there, then the understanding is tainted by the lack of equanimity. It's like we can't really see things clearly if there is an equanimity. So most of you know there are four exertions that are talked about in the tradition. I'll just review these quickly. Most of you have heard them before. It's just the way the Buddha talks about making effort, taking responsibility for this, and in particular this mind or this heart, and the quality of this mind and heart. So the Buddha asks us to abandon what's unskillful. And what is the exertion to guard or to abandon? There is a case where a practitioner on seeing a form with the eye doesn't grasp at any theme or variations by which if one were to dwell without restraint over what the eye is seeing, evil, unskillful qualities such as greed or distress might assail one. One practices with restraint. One guards the faculty of the eye one achieves restraint with regard to the faculty of the eye. This is called exertion to guard or abandon. Right? So, now, we have to hold this, remember, with equanimity. Like, this is done with stability and equanimity. This vigorous effort is done with being grounded in stillness and the heart, the mind, even. But in that context, we want to take responsibility. I mentioned this before. What the mind is paying attention to. Because some visual objects, some auditory objects, some sensations in the body, some smells and tastes and some thoughts are not suitable for attention. Because when the mind attends to them, 
its tendency is to attend to them with greed or with aversion, to get caught in different ways. I mean, who in this room, like if I could bring up any object, I'm sure there I could bring up an object for each person in this room that would cause your mind to get caught in distress. Because your mind wouldn't know how to just see it as an object. So we have to be that wise parent. Now, it's totally appropriate to aspire to be able to see, to hear, to smell, to taste, to touch, and to think, to have any condition arise and not lose the evenness, wholesomeness of the mind. But we're not there yet. So until we're there, we have to guard the mind. We have to practice abandoning perceptions or experiences that are triggering negative conditioning that we don't know how to skillfully be with, to transform with awareness, with mindful awareness. Because if we can't transform it with mindful awareness, we will become that, you know, we get lost, fall into that tendency. And then we'll be that angry person for a while or that lustful person for a while or that, you know, whatever, depressed person for a while. So guarding is the first exertion. The second one is uh, abandoning. And what is the exertion to abandon? There is the case where a practitioner doesn't acquiesce to the thought of sensuality that has arisen in one. One abandons it, destroys it, dispels it, wipes it out of existence. Pretty militaristic. One doesn't acquiesce, acquiesce to the thought of ill will, to the thought of harmfulness, any evil, unskillful qualities that have arisen in one. One abandons them, destroys them, dispels them, wipes them out of existence. This is called the exertion to abandon. So we're guarding the mind, guarding the senses basically, to keep them from looking and knowing experiences that will trigger unwholesome qualities of mind. And then to abandon them, um, we don't give in to sensuality, to ill will, to harmfulness, or to any negative state of mind. We don't feed it. That's what I think is meant by not acquiescing to it. Then the third exertion is the developing. And what is the exertion to develop? There is the case where a practitioner develops mindfulness, the mindfulness factor for awakening, dependent on seclusion, dispassion, cessation, resulting in letting go. He develops the investigation of qualities factor for awakening, the persistence factor for awakening, the rapture or joy factor for awakening, the serenity factor for awakening, the concentration factor for awakening, the equanimity factor for awakening, dependent on seclusion, dispassion, cessation, resulting in letting go. This is called the exertion to develop. And this is something that, in a more direct way, can be joyful. Like to be sitting down where the body feels relatively comfortable, we're feeling safe, we have a nice place, a nice time to sit, we feel safe enough putting down our to-do list for that half an hour or that hour. And this is what I suggested last week as homework for those of you who weren't here, that okay, I've got this time, let's see through skillful effort what I can set in motion. What 
wholesome states of mind can I give life to? And so it's like an artist, you know, they have their canvas and they have their paints, they have their imagination, maybe they have a scenery or whatever. And they say, well, let's see what we can do here. Or a dancer or whatever, you know, carpenter with wood. Well, we have this mind, we have these different tools we've learned, these skillful means, so we have this time, let's see what we can do. What kind of mind can be set in motion? You know, and we do something and we say, well, no, no, that's that's not what I want to set in motion. You know, we erase it or we abandon it. We prevent ourselves from going there again. No, don't go there. That's the guarding or the preventing. And we try to develop something else. We make another attempt to develop. And then if we do, fortunately, create something really beautiful, then, of course, the natural desire will be, well, how can I maintain this beautiful thing that's been set in motion? There's lots of ease here. There's lots of beauty in the mind. Lots of clarity in the mind. A lot of stillness in the mind. I wonder how this could be sustained. What is it that the mind can do right now that strengthens what's already quite wholesome? Or what is it that the mind does that might weaken what's already wholesome? So these, you know, the, these four exertions of preventing or guarding, abandoning unwholesome, developing wholesome, maintaining wholesome, these are natural desires. The Buddha did not say desire was bad. It gets translated that way sometimes. It's craving or clinging that's harmful, that's stressful. The desire, the desire to cultivate and maintain a beautiful state of mind, that's not an unwholesome desire. Or the desire to abandon anger or to prevent anger from arising, that's not an unwholesome desire. That's a beautiful desire. So, you know, in your small groups tonight and then for the next week, as we, next week we'll talk about mindfulness more technically. But uh, see if this week you can find more and more, uh, a way to more and more own the responsibility to take care of your mind. I mean, even using like an image, if you had a 12-month-year-old or a little puppy, a little kitten, or some loved one who was in a very fragile state, maybe in the dying process, and you just wanted to take care of them more than anything else. You just really wanted to be there and not make things worse. And so that's in the very much the same way we have this mind. It's a very alive, dynamic thing. It seems like it, you know, always doing the same thing, but it's capable of doing you know, really anything. So how can we take care of it? How can we really nurture it, set it, you know, set up conditions so it can really thrive and become a beautiful thing? And how can we really protect it from sliding in, falling into really painful, difficult states? And just find an image that works for you that evokes a sense of parental responsibility wholesome parental responsibility. It's interesting how much now in our culture, you know, the word parental almost has horrific senses to it. Like, you know, we always think about like overbearing 
parents. But, you know, the whole idea of being a mother or father is that unconditional kindness, that unconditional regard, like I'm willing to do whatever it takes to take care of you. 